Thanks for joining me for the Pray for Micah podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review, and check out my YouTube channel and follow me on social media. Pray for Micah Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Pray for Micah podcast. And now your host, Micah Chrisman. Welcome to the Pray for Micah podcast, where we explore art, activism, spirituality, and our cosmic insignificance slash significance. I'm here with Justin Stein today. He is a local activist and organizer, and he's been doing this for 20 years. So we just need a hand clap from a crowd just for just for that. That's a long ass time to be <laughs> community organizing. Uh, he's originally from St. Louis, but has lived in Kansas City for the past 10 years. And um, he's worked on campaigns to support and expand union rights, raise the minimum wage, expand access to health care, get money out of politics. I want to learn more about that. Increase police accountability and support solidarity for fast food workers and the fight for 15 and a union. He's also a leader in Surge KC that's showing up for racial justice, Surge KC, for a number of years. And he's committed to building a world where relationships of domination no longer exist and believe that we can be achieved by engaging, to quote Bell Hooks, <laughs> collective liberation struggle. So, Justin, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, he's been seeing me in my hot mess self, knocking mics around, <laughs> spilling water everywhere. I have to dry out one of my mics here, mic heads, because it just decided to take a plunge. It's all right. It's all right. I am, I am a clumsy fellow, so I'm a pretty clumsy fellow. Yeah. I'm just an ogre in this space. I just, <laughs> this is my swamp, and then I just swamp around in it. So thanks for bearing with me and letting me feed my pets and get the show rolling with all you. All good, man. Glad I'm here for the ride. So how long have you lived in Kansas City now, you said? And it, like I saw, it's 20 years altogether, you've been doing organizing but yeah i've been in kansas city for not not quite 10 years but i say 10 years because it's like nine nine and a half plus years at this point so yeah um yeah yeah kansas city's better right I, <laughs> you're like my st louis I've, friends won't appreciate me I have saying no, that I'm I'm, just i have no comment i what i tell people is that they're uh, both cities are great and i have different relationships with both cities so sure sure what do you feel like is your relationship to Kansas City different from like St. Louis? Do you feel like one's more of a food scene, music scene? Do you think they're both comparable or? Um, no, Kansas City is a city that I have gotten to know very much as an adult and in my adult life. Whereas St. Louis is a city that, you know, I have a relationship to going back to my birth <laughs> yeah, right. and my childhood, my formative experiences sure. were in St. Louis. I came of age in St. Louis. I, you know, my early adult years were mostly in St. Louis. I mean, I, I lived in New Orleans for close to two years after Hurricane Katrina, and I spent like five months out in the Bay Area, uh, and I traveled around a bit, but it was mostly up to like St. Louis until I was like 28, um, and then I moved here, and uh, and so it's just been, you know, I came here and I I moved to Kansas City because I got the job and became a lo the Kansas City organizer for Missouri Jobs with Justice, and so I came here and was sort of thrust into just being a community organizer in Kansas City. So it was both um, like a totally new city to me, but also it's a city I've, I've come to like experience and grow in and love and sort of build community around because, you know, I was here to be 
to be an organizer, you know? Yeah. Cool. So you were born in Missouri. Yeah. Okay. In St. Louis. Area. Yeah. Cool. So we're both Missouri boys. Yep. Can we at least agree it's better than Kansas, even though it's more racist than Kansas. <laughs> we get it. We were the wrong side of the civil war, but you're like, I'm not even going to say that about my Kansas people. I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, um, Anywhere you go in this country, there is a lot of work to be done. Sure, sure. I won't get you any. I'm not. I'm trying to fish for you to get in trouble with somebody at the end of the show. I just, I just don't get a chance. Yeah, you hear people who are transplants or different things, so it's nice to have someone who's from the state of Missouri. Yeah, you know, for all its flaws, like you said, and that's everywhere. Sure, you know? sure. That was actually a really big. I mean, I don't know if if this is relevant for our conversation at all, but I, you know. I was in New Orleans for like two years after Hurricane Katrina when I was like 22, 23. And then when I was like 25, I spent some time in the Bay Area. I was doing a community organizing training program out in the Bay Area. And I was doing neighborhood-based organizing in New Orleans after Katrina. And I think in both of those experiences, I had the opportunity to um, work with people and sort of work with a set of mentors and organizations that were... um, really and and particularly like organizers and leaders of color that were like, Hey, like we need white people to work with white people. We need you to go back to your communities and actually Mm -hmm. get your, you know, we need to, we need you to organize your, your people. Right. Yeah. And, um, and I think I sort of took that, uh, I, I felt like the way I could be most effective as an organizer, given my, uh, given my identity, given my history, given my sort of geographic um, upbringing was to actually just like be in Missouri and like try to figure it out here, you know? Yeah. Wow. So these were folks you're saying in particular, this was in Katrina that you're kind of having this kind of call back to Missouri or is it like when you're in the Bay Area or like both kind of when you're traveling? Both. Yeah. And I don't think it was necessarily like a specific callback of like you've literally got to go back home get out of here justin we don't want Uh, you here no (laughs) but but it was a but it was a challenge to be like and and what it you know and i think what i took from that was i i had to seriously i mean at least for me i was like i need to seriously reflect upon where i'm going to be able to be most of use like where am i going to be most of use where am i going to be able to be most impactful where's the sort of most strategic place that i can be um to to sort of you know live and 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 do my work and i felt like you know i need to be um i need to be you know in missouri you know yeah well that's cool i think it's i don't know i've grown up here lived my whole life here i've i've kind of had an itch to move um, this past year, just exploring, thinking about with the pandemic, being able to work virtually. Um, um, but then, you know, I just, all my family who live in Colorado and all these other places are actually moving back. <laughs> yeah. So it's just funny. Like I would be like, if there was a time to move, it would be these last like seven, eight years. But like you, I kind of made the decision after college. I was like, Kansas city, we've lived I lived on a farm out in Grain Valley and so would come to the city every so often, but it was like reengaging the place I've lived in my whole life as an adult. Sure. Hey, I want to plant some roots and try to make a difference in my hometown that 
It's still a new place to me because I didn't live and work here before college. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, and, and not to take it too, you know, not to zoom out too fast, but, but I think, you know, if, if we're thinking about, for me, when I think about the direction of this country and the world in which I would like to be able to live and that I would like to be able to contribute to others living in both now and future generations, then we got to be serious about what it's going to take to build that world. And it's going to take organizing in a lot of places. But I think in a place like Missouri, you know, we're we're roughly an 85 percent white state. Hmm. Right. That went for Trump by close to 20 points both times. Right. And but we're also a state where there's a large working class population. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of pain. And if we're not in place, if I'm you know, if if we're not organizing more white people, particularly in places like Missouri, to break from white nationalism and join multiracial coalition. Right. um, Then we're never going to achieve the political power necessary to, to fundamentally change the direction of this country. And, um, people are going to continue, you know, communities are con- going to be continued to be ravaged, you know, white communities and communities of color are going to be con- continued to be ravaged by the, uh, the effects of, of white supremacy and capitalism, you know? Right. I'm curious, was there ever time, I feel like when I was younger, people, my parents anyways, used to describe Missouri as like a swing state, like uh, that we wouldn't, more often than not, mm-hmm. not just be now. I feel like ever since like before college, it's just always been red <laughs> yeah. with like the exceptions of like certain counties and then just, you know, the major metropolitan hubs of St. Louis and Kansas City. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, so historically, Missouri has been a swing state, um, you know, it, it, it historically has had a, a much um, uh you know, a much, a much more robust, uh, sort of pre you know, Democrats were getting elected a lot more often. Right. There was, um, kind of the, you know, I think still the sort of remnants of like the, the Roosevelt new deal coalition Mm -hmm. where you had, you know, white working class people sort of identifying with the democratic party that was still kind of around even through like 2012. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 20, uh, 18 was the last time any Democrat won um, statewide office, and that was Nicole Galloway. She ran mm-hmm. uh, to get reelected as auditor, and she she ran against somebody who was kind of, I mean, um, sort of an unhinged candidate. Had said <laughs> had said some pretty you know kind of wild things. Didn't have much of a campaign, um, you know. But um, you know, 2016 really did. I think was a major turning point, but the, but that trend had been sort of on the rise of Missouri becoming a, a deeply conservative sort of red state. And I think that's something that we've got to figure out. And again, I, I, I keep going back to you, like, you know, we've got to go in, we've, you know, no matter who people voted for, we've got to get into the communities and show people that we're going to stand and fight with them around the mm. issues that are affecting their lives. Right. I mean, you know, lack of access to healthcare, uh, you know, uh, drug addiction and lack of access yeah. to treatment for, for drug addiction, drug abuse. I mean, low wages, corporate power, these are things like affecting communities all across the state. And so I think, you know, as the left, we've got to figure out 
Um, not just like, oh, how do we get people to vote for Democrats again? But we've got to mm. be like, how how do we demonstrate to people that like we're a relevant force in their lives um, and actually like give a shit about what happens to them, you know? Yeah, I would say probably one of the recent successes that goes to you and probably everyone else who was part of the coalition, the right to work deal that everyone won, you know? I'm curious if there's any updates to that as far as like, because weren't they trying to veto the people's vote on it or overturn the like... Well, I, I kind of I I said I'm having you here because I want your knowledge. You said you're going to give me only opinions, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm here to glean the knowledge because I I'm not always so savvy in the local politics world as sure, I'd like to be. Sure, <laughs> sure. Well, so um, so so the legislature the the so for for some time now, um, particularly the past ten years, um, the only way really for for us as progressives or for, for folks on the left to get any sort of legislation passed has been through the ballot initiative process. So we've done like statewide ballot initiatives to raise the minimum Medicaid. wage, expand medic, you know, pass Medicaid expansion, uh, defeat right to work, uh, pass the clean Missouri, um, uh, initiative in 2018. That was to get politics or money out of politics. money out of politics. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and the legislature then, you know, has always attempted to try to undermine or weaken um, those proposals. And, and they've tried to do all sorts of things to limit the power of, of really of, of working class people and, and, and of the sort of multiracial progressive coalition that we're trying to build. They're always trying to, to uh, um, hold it up in the court, hold it up in the court. Yeah. Just sort of do, do whatever they can to stop it. So, um, you know, one of the things that um, the Republican party, particularly after they, they got uh, elect after Gre Eric Reitens got elected as governor in 2016 and there was a Republican majority in the House and Senate in, in the Missouri legislature, one of their top priorities was passing right to work. And they um, they passed they passed right to work, but because of the referendum process that we have in Missouri, organized labor and its allies were able to gather enough signatures from registered voters in the state to force the question onto the ballot. And so it was basically a citizen's veto of mm. the legislature. So the legislature passed it and we did a citizen's veto where we got gathered signatures to qualify, to force it to a vote. And then in um, August of 2018, the, it was, they put it on the prime, the governor put it on the primary election ballot because he thought it would be um, putting it on the primary ballot means that there's less it's it's harder to get people to go out to vote in august than it is november because the primary is less of a popular election um right. it gets less press and less so either way they tried to put it on put it on the august ballot burner. to make it harder but it, <laughs> but but i mean and but it went down and you know we 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 um uh the vote to to defeat right to work was overwhelming right yeah, so that's what was amazing about and it. they've pretty much left it alone since then now the clean missouri initiative that we passed in 2018 they they put another ref the legislature came back put a referendum on the ballot in 2020 to gut a lot of the clean missouri initiative and they success and that that actually we mm. lost that 51 to 49 percent so that was a pretty narrow defeat but still we, we lost um and that was a that was a bitter pill to swallow and then the legislature has also been continuously trying to play games with medicaid expansion so right. trying to not fund it um claiming that they're going to put you know they're they're they, there was a bill this le se session that they were going to try to put it on the ballot again to see if 
they could get uh, people to vote to override it and sort of rescind Medicaid expansion. None of that's happened, thankfully, but that's the type. They're always doing that. Like every right. session, they're always trying to take away the ballot initiative process. They're always trying to override stuff that we pass at the ballot. So, Right. Yeah, it just always blows my mind, you know, the – you know, the, the few Republican friends I have, because I, I do pride myself that I have a few. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and we'll banter about politics sometimes. Um, and, you know, the whole ideological stance of smaller government, smaller government, you know. And when I share stories of them of just like how fucking frustrating <laughs> small politics is when you pass something like, Kansas City passed, you know, raising the minimum wage to yeah. 15 several mm-hmm. years ago. And so did St. Louis, I think. And then mm-hmm. Jeff City just squashed it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you can't say you believe in small politics. <laughs> when the state legislature is like, okay, no, no, we can't let these, you know, metropolitan hubs make their own decisions like that. And and then the same kind of thing, like like you're saying, this kind of more ambiguous process to the lay person <laughs> who's like, sure. wait, didn't we vote for that? And then they're totally. like, no, they could just referendum and they can like put it again to the vote where then it passes narrowly again and hold it. So I'm curious, like what's your thoughts? Like when you, cause you're a door knocker. So we were talking about how before <laughs> we, when we talked or we were trying to remember how we both met, I was working at CCO. Mm-hmm. We were probably doing, you were with jobs of justice. We were probably doing um, stuff right, probably right before the um, Trump election, I would think somewhere 2015, 2016, yeah, yeah. somewhere in there. Um, so when you're knocking on doors and you're talking to people, how do you make these local issues that still seem like these really big nebulous topics, like just come home to be just both understood, relatable, and like, you know, I don't know. I'm just curious, like, what are your, what are your strategies and tactics of like, how do you take these big, heavy, you know, no one wants to talk about politics at the door. It's kind of like a uh, Mormon's knocking my door. Sure. God, sure. it's not a Mormon. It's worse. It's a, it's a, pol- it's a political person. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what are your, th- what are your thoughts about when you meet those people? How do you break it down? Totally. Well, so I think, I think a few things. One is that it, in a lot of respects, there's, there's like a, what what I have found is that there's sort of a simple answer to that question, but it also seems to be like this really difficult existential question for people on the organized left <laughs> that yeah. we haven't quite figured out. Um, I think the, the, the simple answer to that question is that people do not develop their sense of themselves. Like we as people don't develop our sense of ourselves, our identities, and our understanding of the world around us by collecting data or empirical evidence or reading of maybe some of us who are like eggheads, you know, sure. like sort of like uh, 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 tend to tend to, to go towards that sort of stuff to be like, oh, we, we want to get the data and the facts. But but really, our our ideas about the world are shaped by our experiences. Yeah, and so the question then becomes how are people both in conversations that they're having with you on the door, but also in other parts of their life, having experiences or reflecting on a set of experiences that they've never reflected on before that make them rethink what they think about a particular issue. Um, And so, you know, I think on the 
people getting access to experiences that help change or transform how they see themselves in the world around them. I think the five for 15 campaign stand up KC mm-hmm. here. Uh, and, and I think like KC tenants recently have been like yeah. really perfect examples of that, of, you know, everybody that I know who's been part of the five for 15 campaign from the, particularly the workers, right. Standing right. up and saying, we deserve more to the like faith leaders or community members who are coming out and like showing up and taking over the fast food restaurant lobby <laughs> with the workers, right. Where we've like maybe never done that before. Right. right. So that, that, that sort of scale of action, hmm. you're having an experience that's, that's actually forcing you to rethink like who, who am I and what do I deserve? And like, how does this world actually work? And right. then I think like on the doors, you know, I just did a project, back in March where I was knocking on the doors of, um, of white folks in independence and asking them about how they felt about universal healthcare, but then also asking them how they felt about undocumented immigrants getting access to healthcare if we had universal healthcare. Right. And there was a lot of sort of, you know, plenty of folks that were just like, yeah, I like the idea of universal healthcare, but the idea of undocumented immigrants getting it is like, absolutely not. But then whenever you get into it with somebody and you say, have you ever had an experience of, of, have you ever had a healthcare issue or have you ever struggled to pay or get access to healthcare? You know, people, a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, I did have, you know, like mm. I'm, I'm paying $400 a month for insulin. Right. Right. Um, and then you're like, have you ever met anybody who's moved here from another country? And, you know, a lot of, some people have, some people haven't, you know, I would, oftentimes then share like stories about people that I knew who had moved here from other countries um, and sort of share what I knew about their experience. And through that conversation, right. And I didn't hit people with like, well, here's going to be all the benefits of universal healthcare, you know, in terms of people getting covered and lower costs and here's all Mm -hmm. the data, right. Or here's all the data and information about undocumented immigration and you know, why undocumented immigrants deserve universal health. I didn't do any of that stuff. I asked sure. people about their experiences. I shared my experiences. We, we like swap stories about our experiences with healthcare, our experiences with people uh, who've moved here from other countries. Some people I talked to about like our own like immigrant f- family histories and like what our families went through, like even if it was a century ago. And, and that stuff, all of a sudden you start to unpack and sort of unleash a whole host of stuff right. that you would never ever get to if you just showed up and hit them with a bunch of facts, right? And so it sounds like you spent about an hour <clears throat> per home. No, yeah, I'm well, I mean, you know, a good a good conversation. You're we not just it, like quickly. Go, yeah, yeah, no, it was like, a deep canvassing project. So like a yeah. good like a good thorough, you know, and this is like you know on the door. So like if you're sitting there with people for twenty to thirty minutes, you're you know that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I like. I appreciate you did that kind of that project because yeah, the ones I've been involved with, it's. I mean, and there's sometimes that's you're, it's called for, right? You're just doing the sprint. You're doing the phone banking. You're just going line to line, you know, door to door, and just quickly trying to just, hey, here's a little handout with some facts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's. And, I mean, that's different than just regular. Like you know, you're knocking on doors and trying to mobilize the right people to get out to vote. Right. You know, four weeks before an election, it's a different type of project. I mean, the other thing that I would say is, I think, I I I believe, um, and and you know, I think there'll be people who disagree with me, but I believe that the most 
effective way to facilitate sort of bring about social changes through social movements. Mm. And I think that um, social movements are driven by a lot of things, but I think the, the main thing that they're driven by are strong, like uh, direct action issue, issue based campaigns right. where you're bringing together a base of people to take collective action with each other especially people who normally wouldn't necessarily take collective action with each other and you're bringing them together to take collective action on an issue that's affecting all of them and their lives. And you're articulating a demand on somebody who has the ability to sort of give you what you want. But then you, you know, but, but I think what, um, cause then what you do is even people who aren't participating in that campaign or that movement, uh, are forced to sort of confront how they feel about it, right? Five for right. fifteen. Five for fifteen did that brilliantly, right? right? Where they had a, and 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 they still do have a, a deeply robust sort of like media campaign where they're saying, look, like you have to decide whether you are a fast food worker or not, whether you're okay living in a country where people get up to go to work every day and still live in poverty, right? right. Like you have to decide whether you're okay with that or not. Um, and I think that that's like, I think, I think, I think that's, I think that's it. I think that's what we have to do. Man. And it just sucks. And, you know, I don't want to derail of talk about inflation and the current <laughs> stuff going on and how people were using that as arguments for why we shouldn't fight for 15. But it's just amazing to me that, yeah, those friends who were against fight for 15, eight years ago or seven years, you know, when we were like really in the throes of it here in Kansas city, as far as like again, we're still fighting for it. We're still trying to get it as far as like, you know, um, as a mandatory thing, but you know, now, I mean, it wasn't enough then and it's definitely not enough now. Like with, right. inflation, you know, like right. they were, I think they were saying back then, like 2014, 2015, that a single parent with a child household, like single income household with a child, needed to be making at least $23 an hour sure. to be able to mm -hmm. just have the basics of housing, food, clothing. And, um, and so those folks inevitably, if they had $15 an hour jobs, they were working two of them, you know, and yeah. they were, you know, never seeing their kids can barely afford childcare. And it just causes that ripple effect of how it affects their lives. Yep. And it still just blows my mind that, you know, folks are like, no, no, they should still only be getting 15 an hour. And I'm like, have you seen how much gas, you know, and like, and, yeah. that, and if you think that's what caused inflation, no, that was not, <laughs> this is not yeah. what's causing that. I mean, but I think it's real. I mean, and I, I, I imagine most folks like listening to your podcast, like don't believe that like poor people are responsible for inflation, but that's the, you know, a lot of times the policies that get promoted, right. right where it's like, Oh, you know, they're talking about inflation now. It's like, Oh, like there's, you know, this like wages are going up too much and i'm like well nobody's talking about ceo pay nobody's talking about corporate right. profits because those are currently uh also record-breaking <laughs> yeah you know um and you know i mean there's a number of factors that have caused the sort of recent sort of situation of inflation i you know and i i don't think it's uh smart to be cavalier about it but uh, the reason why we're not currently in a recession and we didn't go into a deep recession over the course of the pandemic was because, frankly, of sh 
large federal government intervention right. <laughs> to make sure that the economy didn't just completely bottom out. And the fact that workers now have more bargaining power right. um, over the, you know, to decide where they're going, especially at the lowest, uh, uh, lowest paid sectors of our economy in retail and fast food and, and, and things like that. The fact that workers now have better choices and more bargaining power and higher wages I, you know, I, uh, I think that that's a good thing and I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's actually accurate to say that, um, right. you know, uh, uh target workers making eight dollars an hour it's be, it's is like that, that, right. that, 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 that is actually the reason inflation is happening. Um, that's, that's, just, that's not accurate and sure. it, 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 it takes away from the broader issue, which has always been massive economic inequality in our society. Yes. Snap, snap. No, I'm, I'm with you. And I guess the the problem right now, I feel like, is that, yeah, while I think it's amazing, yeah, folks work at Target or wherever, getting 18 an hour, now their spending power is down as far as, like, again, they, you know, six, seven years ago needed $23 an hour. It's probably, like, $28, $30 sure. yep. an hour. Yep. Um, and that's just economics, I guess. I'm not an economist, but... <laughs> um. But yeah, man, I remember just hearing some people I do, some real conservative folks, they were so fucking pissed. They're going to their local Taco Bell and it's shut down for the day because they didn't have enough workers, you know, to fill the slots. Yeah. And everyone's just kind of bashing. They're like, oh, we're the pandemic. No one wants to work. And it's it's all these lazy people at these fast food. And it's like, no, they went somewhere else. They find, They were just... These places weren't paying them well enough. And so these people were like, I'm going to yeah. get the fuck out and I'm going to go work virtually. I'm going to get a job. You know, I'm going to figure yeah. out something else. Cause, yeah. and so I just think it's funny. Yeah. I like it when people get so pissed and hissy fit when there's like, no one wants to work anymore. Well, you want to pay them shit wages working sure. at Taco Bell and at, yeah. at Burger King. So of course, yeah. you know, and I, and I think it, it speaks to, I mean, I am not, I am, you know, uh, I am not a sort of, I, I don't, I don't like Milton Friedman. I don't believe in neoclassical economic theory. I don't support this idea of small government and free markets, right? Like I think it's I think that's all uh you know, it's this it's this sort of infrastructure of intellectual justification to basically keep poor people poor. Right. Make more people poor and concentrate wealth among a very small group of mostly white, credibly wealthy, and politically influential people, right? Like, I just, I don't buy into any of that stuff. However, the logic, though, I think to your point, like, the, the you know, like the idea of, like, the state legislature overturning the ordinances that we passed in St. Louis and Kansas City in 2015 to raise the local minimum wages, and they were like, oh, no, you can't do that. I, you know, and again, I... Um, yeah, I feel like there's, like, within, you know, this idea, you know, on among conservatives or at least people who sort of promote this, like, well, you need small government and like let the market sort of dictate, you know, how society should function. And, and it's like, but when that actually happens, I feel like some of those same people are like, oh, well now we need, now we need, you know, we need right. to, we need, we need, uh, we, we actually need intervention from the government of some type in order to, uh, 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 force people back into low paying jobs right. or, you know, I mean the 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 bailout into the the eight hundred billion dollar bailout of the banking industry in two thousand nine after they ravaged the economy. It's just like okay, well, how does that you know right? 
how does that, um, well, you know, while millions of people lost their homes, right. right. Um, including my parents, right. Like they, they wow. actually, like they had some, you know, they were able to, they were, they were able to be okay, but, um, you know, but they, I mean, they got foreclosed on Holy years God. after that, uh, as well, you know? And so yeah. it's like, you've got regular people who, uh, are typically, you know, I, I all that's the small government, the free market stuff. It's, it's ultimately like, it's like, okay, like that works for maybe like the top 5% of the population. Right? right. I mean, I know we talk a lot about the 1%, the top zero percent Right. I mean, just, I, and all the discussion about, you know, oh, like, you know, uh, if workers make more, it's going to raise the cost of everything or, you know, the Taco Bell's closed because, you know, we need to do something to get people back to work. I feel like that just, that just takes the conversation away from what is really the problem at the heart of our yes. country right now. And that's, we're living in a system of, of racialized capitalism. Yes. Where we decided a permanent underclass. Is, exactly. Yeah. That we're okay with a permanent underclass of, of BIPOC folks. <clears throat> um, sorry to hear that about your parents. I'm glad they're in a okay spot now. Yeah. yeah. I had an uncle lost his cabinetry business. Same kind of yep. thing. Had started it a year or two before was really thriving because at that time houses and development yeah. was, was crazy. And then next thing you know, his whole business shut down and co company failed because couldn't build cabinets for houses. They weren't building houses anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and like what? Handful of people like got fines. No one went to prison, like in the bank. It's like, yeah, so just, no, I mean, uh, just go watch the Big Short or whatever it is. Yeah, no, they're all the, doing. They're all doing fine. Yeah, you know, um, they always do, don't they? That cat's always landing on their feet. And I appreciate what you're bringing. So I want to delve more into that the idea of like people are motivated, obviously, by. Um, the sense of their identity of what they feel is right or what they feel like that's what gets them to move and motivate. And it's like, you're to your point that in order to sustain change in our local communities to larger politics, we need like social movement of like the heart, essentially, like we need to bring people together. And so what do you feel like post Trump? Um, Cause the work didn't just stop, you know, everyone, mm -hmm. I think for some, a lot of liberals maybe, um, they just kind of thought, okay, well, we got Biden in the office. We can all take a breather now. Just kind of take a break and like things are going to go a little bit better. Yeah. And like other folks, obviously, like I'm sure you've been like in the trenches, like really, no, we've been going <laughs> just as hard as like when Trump was in office. Maybe there's a little bit more leverage or things on your side, a little less barriers maybe from some, some certain political landscapes. But I guess, how do you feel like, to speak to those people who were super motivated by, you know, the, the, the protests and George Floyd and just, you know, who are really motivated, um, to do anti-racism work, um, during those high points of like the Trump presidency who maybe have grown lax or just are kind of just doing their, you know, this thing. Like, I guess, how do you break that mold of like, just because we have a Democrat in the, in the White House means sure. our problems are going to, I don't know. I guess I'm just curious, like, what is, like, the issues now that, I mean, they're the same issues, right? But I guess, I, I guess what the question I'm trying to get to is, like, do you feel like there's a sense, and maybe that's a false perspective or assumption I'm making, that do you feel like there's, like, more 
an apathy going on on the left since is that just more of like what the media shows like oh like protests are everywhere at one point you know the whole world sure. was the america was burning burnt down by liberals you know sure, like sure. <laughs> antifa well, uh, right well i think all that i mean i think the the i i think that the i mean the you know if you turn on fox news and you know i mean they're they're trying to say you know that the january 6th insurrection was nothing compared to the george floyd protest you know i mean it's so you right. get in segments of the conservative media you know and i don't want to downplay fox news's influence because i think its influence is significant sure over the sort of ideological kind of happenings in our country but um so i i think a couple things one is that you know there, there are i i believe let me say that that there are moments where um there, there are moments of upheaval right like there are moments where it can the conditions come together in such a way that um, incredible amount of uh, change becomes possible in a relatively short period of time. And I think, you know, I think that happened after Mike Brown's murder in 2014. Um, I think George Floyd's murder and, and the, the upheaval um, and the, and the protest against the, the ongoing violence of white supremacy every day, particularly in working class black communities, um, was um, something that just became increasingly um, uh, unacceptable, to, for lack of a better word, um, to people. So I think that there's those moments, right? And those moments are hard to sustain, right? Because it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to be out in the streets every day for right. months at a time, right? Right? Which, like, after Mike Brown was murdered, like people. You know, I mean, I knew people who, I mean, they were in the they streets. Were, they they didn't, were for months. They didn't weeks, sleep, right? right? I mean, it was just like, I mean, and and like, I think similarly after George Floyd, like, I mean, it's, that is a, those types of moments are hard. They're moments because they're hard, they're hard to sustain, right? For a lot of reasons. Right. Um, But I think. And those um, get all the headlines. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those get all the headlines and, and, and rightly so. And I think like, you know, I think um, I am you know, always, uh, I mean, I, 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 I think people, I think people all over are trying, uh, to do what they can every day, not only to survive, but to also try to make the world a little better of a place, you know? Right. So, but I think the, um, you know, I think since, uh, the 2020 election, you know, it, it, this is why let me say this i think this is why i think having direct action issue based campaigns that are forcing people to choose a side and that people can easily plug into and take action on that result in the material condition like materially like changing the conditions of people's lives that's why i think those those campaigns and movements that can be built around those campaigns are like i think that is where social change happens right sure. you, you've got like people have to have something to do um people have to be have to make a decision about whether they're going to take action or not and you have and in order for that to happen people actually have to have an action that they can take i think the the sort of you know the like after george floyd was murdered it was very clear like i think for for people who were outraged by that getting into the streets with other people and protesting police brutality and standing for black lives matter was 
became but became a much more accessible like it was accessible right. right i mean at least for people who are able to to give the time that were physically able to sort of be out in the streets like that right like it was something mm-hmm. like you could just jump on social media and again like if you you know or, or word of mouth like there were just it was it was right. something that you could that you could do um and i think that if we're not continuously giving people opportunities to take action on things that they care about then it's hard to know what you can do to, to take action on the things that you care about. Um, especially in a way that feels as powerful and transformative as getting into the streets with people and right. confronting abusive power in our society. I think that, um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very frightened about the uh, decision coming out from the Supreme court about Roe v. Wade. Right. Um, but I think, there has been uh, ongoing organizing for decades now, years. I mean, for pro-reproductive people who support reproductive freedom, um, you know, defending and trying to expand access to reproductive freedom. And I think, you know, um, I think that that is a salient issue that we have to confront. I think the ongoing pandemic of gun violence yes. and the control in our political system that the, the gun manufacturers and the gun lobby has. Um, is an ongoing issue. I think that uh, over-policing of communities and mass incarceration and um, uh, the the war on black people in this country uh, is, you know, there's people continuing, you know, ha- who have been for decades and decades and decades and continue to sort of organize around that uh, stuff. But I think, I think, I think, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I I am uh, not particular. I'm not pr- very hopeful about the midterms, um, just because right. I think th- there is sort of a, a broad sentiment that Biden's not doing a good job and inflation and things like that. I don't know if um, the partic- you know, particularly like um, issues around reproductive freedom and gun control are going to motivate enough people to get out and vote in the midterms uh, right. on the left. Um, you know, I think the, the, the other thing that's happening that the Biden administration has actually been very helpful on through the national labor relations board is the NLRB has been more proactive at supporting, um, and, and sort of stopping, um, uh, employer, uh, sort of corporate, anti-union campaign so Mm. the unionization efforts happening at starbucks um the unionization sort of push and the organizing that's happened at like different amazon facilities and warehouses the nlrb has been issuing rulings and sort of putting what is that acronym sorry uh national labor relations board okay so that was it was set up uh i'm gonna get the law it was set up in the 1930s um, See, as I'm getting the knowledge out of yeah. you. You said you didn't have it. Uh, I can't remember if it was the Wagner Act in 35 or a different act. The National Labor Relations Act maybe it was in 37. I I should know this, but I don't know this. But um, but it's set up basically the, the National Labor Relations Board is the body that certifies union elections, among other things. So if you go to a, you know, you go to Amazon, where like the Amazon Labor Union in New York, once they felt like they could win an election, they filed for an election with the National Labor Relations Board. The National Labor Relations Board said, okay, here's the date. And the National Labor Relations Board basically oversees the election to make sure that it's conducted fairly. 
But you can also file complaints to the National Labor Relations Board and say, our employer, Amazon, is engaging in unfair labor practices, or our employer, Amazon, is engaging in anti-unionization efforts oh, that are sure. against the law, right? Now, under Trump, the NLRB didn't do shit, right? I mean, it didn't care. But like, you know, under um, Biden, it has been more favorable to employees trying to organize. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I know friends, people who work in Amazon, and it's hell. It's, it's, yeah. It's ter- and it's, and, you know, I don't know. I've, like, I've had people on the show before, and we talk about how much capitalism sucks as we talk into my microphone that's going into my MacBook Pro. You know, that's like, <laughs> like I'm a consumer. I, I buy things, I consume things. And that's the thing, like, at the end of the day, like, the model of Amazon isn't what people are mad about. It's, 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 or, you know, getting things delivered to your door. It's how we treat the workers. Sure. You know, it's how, and so, and it's crazy. Yeah. You watch like just, yeah, I've saw, I saw whatever the John Oliver special that talks about the, yeah, the anti labor union efforts of Amazon really, you know, basically preempting um, votes and stuff and trying to do all this. Yep video like this is for the knowledge of our staff like, right if you right. if you get in a labor union you'll be charged all this money and you'll lose health you know all this stuff and yep and yet every time like and that's part of the reason why right to work i think was such a terrible thing because they mm-hmm. were showing how like if that had passed like like non union labor states versus like yep the, the difference in quality of life and worker yep. life is huge yep. like it it really makes a difference to have labor unions yep i mean over the past 50 years we have seen um we have seen the the uh percentage of workers cup in labor unions significantly decline from roughly like one in three workers or about a third of the workforce was in a labor union in the 1960s to today. um, You have 6% of workers in the private sector in labor unions. And you've got uh, probably like somewhere between 15 to 16% in the public sector. So you've got like 10, 11% of the American workforce in a labor union. Whereas um, in, you know, in the sixties, it was at 30, 33%, 35% around there. And you've also seen in that time a correlated, right? I mean, the economic well-being of more people in this country has also been on a decline. Yes. I mean, so you see a direct correlation between a decline in union membership, which it isn't just because like workers like left their union, it's because uh, the manu- manufacturing moved out of the countries, right? So right. there were a lot of union jobs that moved out of the country. And there were also, starting with Ronald Reagan, uh, like a full frontal assault from the political class, the conservative political class, and corporate America on labor unions. Mm-hmm. And and as a result of that, we are now living today in an, an, area, an era of wealth inequality that we haven't seen since the Gilded Age in the late 19th century. Wow. Yeah, so my grandfather, Frank Chrisman, used to work for Armco Steel. Okay, yeah. Mill, which mm-hmm. is over here. It Well, it's been shut down for years now. But it was it's over here in the same neighborhood. Did it shut days. down after 2008? Was it, was I thought it, it was earlier than that. I don't know. I think he worked there kind of like in that golden age of like yep. labor. Yep. 
but my grandma um unless i may she rest in peace um for the longest time was just well taken care of because of his pension yep. because of that labor and yep. it was just like we did not have a lot of wealth in my family but the fact that he had this this labor union that he was part of like the health insurance and all this stuff yep. alone like took care of her up until her 90s and now yeah like i mean yeah one yeah like and that's the thing everyone's trying to say like just you know your 401k and just do this and it'll take care of you and you know when you retired it's like they say like even now if you retire right now at this moment you need basically need to have i think like i think it was like over a million dollars like yeah. just to be able to have at the, if you could just time stamp yeah <laughs> the cost of things right now at this moment you need to have like eighty thousand dollars a year basically to retire for 25 yeah plus years till yeah. death yeah and a million dollars like you know like you, all right. pe- people will be lucky if they have that in right like 30 years or 40 years you know right. like and by then a billion dollars will be chump change you know like yeah I don't even know yeah I mean, I, I think the, you know, and, and, and it becomes even more egregious when you look at, um, I mean, um, when you look at, I mean, cause you can look at income inequality, which is one thing, but then when you look at wealth inequality, then it becomes even more stark right. of just how much, you know, actually, you know, your, your, your assets minus your liabilities sort of is either, you know, the wealth that you have or the de- the negative wealth <laughs> that you have. And, uh, and, and, and that's particularly, um, pronounced and even more, um, serious for, uh, for black and brown families. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, I mean, the thing I would say, and this is where I think why social movements and why mass-based social movements and campaigns uh, targeting those that have the power to sort of change, you know, why union campaigns, why the fight for 15, why Casey tenants confronting slum landlords, why Casey tenants also like demanding things like, uh, 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 um, an affordable housing trust fund Mm -hmm. that is administered by, you know, with 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 ten, low income tenants having seats at that table, right? They're they're actually taking that and saying, well, we need to actually change. We need to be producing structures within governance that affected people control. So mm-hmm. we're not just asking politicians to change a law to give us something that we need. We're actually creating. We're actually changing the way governance is happening, where we're controlling more act. We're more actively controlling. And, and exercising governing power, right? Like we're not just protesting, we're actually governing. Sure. Um, and I think that that's an interesting, you know, I think that that's really important. And I also think that like, you know, I was talking to Daniel Tucker from Stand Up KC Shout out. a few weeks ago. Yeah, Daniel no, I Tucker. mean, and I think he like, he said, you know, I think he was really on point. He was just like, you know, social democracy after World War II didn't just like emerge, right? right? Like it wasn't like a thing that the mat- market magically produced. It was because there was a crisis in capitalism in the thirties and you had really militant labor unions in the Congress of industrial organizations, many of them multiracial, you know, many of them, you know, you had, you had a lot of black worker organizing and, and uh, civil rights struggles wedded with labor struggles, right. Causing a crisis for capital that frankly, the new deal 
under Roosevelt was designed to mediate. And, you know, you don't get, you know, you, you don't, you don't just get, you know, uh, uh, programs like social security or right. the minimum wage or laws uh recognizing five-day work week five-day work week laws recognizing labor unions you don't get medicaid and medicare in the 1960s uh you don't get um massive federal subsidies for home ownership for white families to be right. clear but something that expanded the middle class in, the, in america for white families to be clear but you, you don't get any of that stuff, right? You don't get expanded access to healthcare, union rights, minimum wages, uh, housing. You don't get any of that stuff without social movements causing a crisis for right. capital that government then has to mediate. Right. Wow. In my opinion. No. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, and 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 from what I understood, Daniel saying I and in and, and Daniel Tucker's opinion, as I understood. Oh well, what Daniel no, I'm just gonna have saying. Daniel here now. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's gonna he'll, have to verify if this is his opinion or not. He, he'll say much smarter stuff than I. No, do. yeah, no. You guys are you guys are over, out of my league. You're going, you know, hundred years in of labor union history. That's that's powerful. It's it's, and yeah, it's crazy. Like you're saying, like yeah, we just expect or you know certain factors people want like expect the free market just to salt like you're saying, but. Those issues didn't get solved through corporate in, you know, interests being like, you know what? We really want housing to be affordable, you know, for people and yeah. this and that. Like, you know, it's like and like you said, Casey Tenants, I'm so yeah, proud of those folks. Like they just recently, whatever, shut kept uh, also one of the St. Louis developers from you know developing over here something yeah, like that yeah yeah i read um, i read an article because well, it was another you know it was another tax giveaway right to a major um you know sort of de developer who had a lot uh, of problems and yeah. has all these outstanding like lawsuits and things going on where they're building shitty houses yep <laughs> like yep so it's like you know it's it's the you know are we we're gonna give we're gonna send more of our tax base away from our local schools Right. And to some shitty developer who's going to come in and be a shit landlord and not yes. actually contribute anything meaningful to the community. So again, tied up to the larger issues that are happening, everyone, these companies pulling money out of their, they're, they're just leveraging their stock, their money their, to buy property mm -hmm. so they can start renting that out to people because it's this whole land grab literally kind totally. of happening right now where people are just like, yeah. And, and without, I mean, and not to, you know, I mean, I, I, I will, I will, I will crush on Casey tenants like all day. Right. Cause they're just like awesome. <laughs> yeah, um, they're, yeah. They're like I'll be the same with like stand up KC uh -huh. and obviously like I used to work at Missouri job. I mean, I will just like crush on all these groups. Right. <laughs> but like, um, you know, like affordable housing, uh, tenants rights, um, and, and the way development is being done in this city like that is a that 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 was a that became a primary issue in the mayoral election. Yeah. In, what was it? Twenty nineteen. I can't keep track of the. Yeah. When when Lucas won, I mean right. Lucas basically got elected by running on a platform of affordable housing. Right. Right. And the fact that it's the fact that there's any conversation being had about you know uh, tax money going to questionable development projects. Uh, corporate ownership of 
apartment complexes and housing in the city, tenants' rights, te people people who are you know renters having more of a say in the governance of housing policy in the city. None of that happens without Casey tenants shutting shit down. Yeah. Right. Literally. I mean, like literally shutting city hall council down, shutting down the eviction proceedings in Jackson County oh, court. Yeah, right. The pandemic. Yeah. Like none of that happens without them showing up to shut down the Jackson County commissioners meeting. Um, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the mobile home park, uh, out in Eastern Jackson County that, mm -hmm. you know, the, basically the, the owner of the mobile home park, Jackson County bought the mobile home park from them and they're evicting everybody, uh, in order to build a new jail. Right. Of so like course. insult, insult on top of injury, you know, injury on top of insult or whatever the say, I can't remember what the saying is, but, um, there's a lot of know, injuries and insults. happening. Yeah. But it's with just like, area. none of that stuff gets talked about. None of that stuff gets, none of that stuff gets any attention without an organization, without, without a social movement organization hmm. forcing the conversation by causing crisis, right. Or they taking the crisis and making it visible. Right. And in a more right. militant way. And like stand up case, like, right. Like, you know, the, the, the conversation about wages and wealth inequality in unions wouldn't be happening today if it wasn't for like thousands and thousands of fast food workers across the country literally shutting down right. the fast like fast food restaurants right that doesn't like it you don't ha it doesn't happen short of that Absolutely. you know um and i yeah so i don't know i could talk about that forever but all right Tara, everybody else got to have you on the show too. Just tell talk Casey tenants <laughs> and all these good folks, man. Cause yeah, like, like you're right. Like there's just so much that, yeah, we just think there's so much change and, and benefits folks get to have. And it wouldn't have, it just, it doesn't come freely. It has to be fought for. And there's so many people who want to strip those rights every day. And was deep as a red state and how take two steps forward, one step back. It feels like in Missouri with all these things, it's still progress is progress. And yeah. I think like you're saying, we're seeing it. It just, it's going to take time. Thanks for joining us for part one with Justin Stein. We had so much good, rich conversation. I went ahead and made it um, split up and we're doing a part one and a part two. And I'm just going to release them both at the same time. So go ahead and feel free to go ahead and hop over and listen to part two of the interview with Justin Stein. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining me for the Pray for Micah podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review. And check out my YouTube channel and follow me on social media. Pray for Micah pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'll see you next time. You are now re-entering the normal world. 